Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Morgan Jones Phillips. Why? 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 Why do I do all the penis calls? That and more, but before that, I want to remind you about the fantastic deal we have with AdamandEve.com. If you go to AdamandEve.com for a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll get three free adult DVDs, a free exclusive gift, and to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on your whole order. So go to AdamandEve.com and use the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Also, how great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? I'll tell you, I had to get a money order for a special thing the other day, and it took me, I think, a half hour waiting at the post office. Listen, there's no need to do that. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your own schedule with Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it right from your own desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more running there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. You even get special postage discounts that you can't get at the post office. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the incredible bongo band behind me now. I've been watching The Get Down on Netflix, and this is one of the most sampled tracks in the history of hip-hop, and I can't get it out of my head this week. We're calling today's episode, Oh, Canada! Oh, Canada! Canada. Because the three stories we're featuring on today's show come from our Toronto and Montreal shows. Now, there were many other stories shared during those two shows, so they will come in later shows. But for this one, I just thought these three were a good mix. Two from Toronto, one from Montreal. Kind of an interesting journey we're going to take. From funny to gross to scary to profound all over the map. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Dale Corvino telling a story in Montreal. I'll tell you more about Dale later. But first, we're going to start with a very funny guy. Morgan Joan Phillips has his own show called Emergency Monologues. He's an EMT in Toronto, so he has a lot more stories where this one came from. Here he is now, Morgan Jones Phillips, live at the Risk Show in Toronto with a story we call Say Goodbye to My Little Friend.
So I have been a paramedic uh, here in the city of Toronto for 13 years. I'm actually a field training officer, which means that I train uh, college students and I also train new paramedics and help them adjust to the job. And I like doing that because when I was new, I was not very good at the job. When I was new, I was very, very nervous. I was shy, I was insecure, I had very little confidence in my skills or in myself, and I really had a hard time building that up. So of course, this story happened when I was new. So this is like 13 years ago, and it's a night shift, and I am in a Chinese restaurant ordering some food when my pager goes off. And I look at my pager and it says, Bravo hemorrhage. Now a Bravo is what we call a medium low priority call. So it's not a lights and sirens type of response. And hemorrhage, someone is bleeding somewhere. But they're bleeding somewhere that is a non-life-threatening, low-priority place. Now, this, um, this doesn't leave this room. <laughs> but on occasion, if I've already ordered my food <laughs> and I get a medium-low-priority call, I might wait for it to be ready. So I'm waiting for my food when I get an update. And the update comes across my pager and it says, male 37, feeling bored, cut off own penis and flushed it down toilet. Two things went through my mind at that moment. The first was, fuck my food, I gotta go. The second was I was thinking back to college and I was imagining in school when we would do scenarios where we would simulate emergencies and we would prepare for our life on the road and we would do car accidents where someone broke an arm or needed spinal immobilization or was having a heart attack and had to be defibrillated or had anaphylaxis and was eating a Snickers bar. We never did someone cutting off their own penis. So I ran out to the truck and my partner, Brian, Brian's been on longer than me, as I said, I was new. Brian's been on for a while. Brian's a cool guy, totally relaxed together. He's sitting behind the wheel and I run up to him and I jump into the passenger seat and I say, did you see the call that we have? And he says, yeah, 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 I saw a Bravo hemorrhage, whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> did you see the details on this call? And he says, I didn't bother looking. I pull up my pager, male 37, feeling bored, cut off own penis and flushed down toilets. And he reacted in a way that I didn't expect. He starts pounding on the steering wheel and saying, why? 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 Why do I do all the penis calls? Because what I didn't know is that this was his first day back from stress leave from doing another call. He got a call for a man acting peculiar in an alley. We'll call this man Mr. Tinfoil Hat. So he, his partner of that day, Chris, and a cop walk into the alley to see Mr. Tinfoil Hat, and there he is, and he's like, the, the aliens, the aliens are coming to get me. The, the, the aliens, you, you gotta help me. The aliens are coming to get me. And Brian's cool. Brian's relaxed. Brian's like, 
that's, that's cool, brother. I'll take care of you. Don't you worry. Come to my ambulance. We'll talk about this. I'll take care of those aliens. Don't you worry. I'll protect you. It's cool. And the guy says, no, no, no. You, you don't understand. The, the aliens are coming to get me. They're, they're coming to get me. I got to get rid of the tracking device. I got to get rid of the tracking device. And he pulls, stay with me here. Let's all be Zen and be in the moment here. <laughs> he pulls down his sweatpants takes a broken light bulb, slices open his scrotum, and his testicle falls to the ground. So Chris, Chris and the cop jump on the guy. And my partner Brian rolls up the testicle, and takes the guy to the hospital. This is his first day back, getting back in the saddle, as it were, doing the job. Now, you may be saying to yourself, oh, penis testicle calls must be so rare on the job. After that call, any truck he was on, we would call the unit unit. Now, I did another call years later, which is another way of saying a couple years ago. And we did a call for a guy who, for medical reasons that I'll be honest, I don't know and didn't care to find out, he had testicles the size of basketballs. And so both of them were basketball-sized and hung down to clear the ground by about an inch or two. And so we're taking him to the hospital. And as he starts walking, we can see that there's this pendulum effect with every step that he takes. And we can see with every step that he takes that his nutsack is swinging a little bit farther and a little bit bigger until at one point it's just going to pull him off balance. And he's going to go crashing to the ground. So we don't want this to happen. So my partner and I line ourselves up on either side of him so that as the nutsack swings, it kind of hits us in the legs. (laughs) But keeps him from falling over. Anyway, so he walks over. He sits down on the stretcher. He kind of sits down. The nutsack is still hanging off the side. It's sort of, you know, again, clearing the ground by about an inch. And as I said, this is a couple of years ago, so I'm not new anymore. This is not my first day. Uh, I don't pull the seniority card very often, but I turned to my junior partner that day, and I said, you want to pick that up and deal with that (laughs) anyway so back to our story here so we're driving lights and sirens through the city like only a couple of guys can on a mission to save another man's junk (laughs) I want to just take a moment to just uh, mention that this call came in as a medium low priority call And at no point was it ever upgraded to be a more serious call. And this is something that I can only attribute to female call takers. Because I guarantee you, if a male was on the other end of that phone when they called 911, it would have been treated much more seriously. Anyway. So there we are, blazing around, when we get another update. And the update says, patient will meet you at George's Chicken House on Bathurst. (laughs) So my partner and I are having a brief discussion about doing this amputation call in a chicken house. When we get another update, dispatch is saying, Patient has been advised 
to stay home and not go to George's Chicken House on Bathurst. (laughs) Which we think is sage advice. So we are blazing through and we get to his street and we pull up and we, I jump out of the truck and I run around the back and I'm pulling out the stretcher and I can hear a guy walking up the street kind of ranting and raving and yelling and it's the kind of neighborhood where uh, that it takes more than that to draw my attention and I can hear him and he's like, what are you doing waking up the neighbors with all, all your lights and your sirens and you're making all your noise? And I'm just ignoring him. And I'm pulling the stretcher out when he says something that gets my attention. He says, I told you to meet me at George's chicken house. (laughs) Sir, did you call 911? Yeah. Did you harm yourself this evening? Yeah, I cut off my penis. And, and where's that penis now? I flushed it down the toilet. And now my wife will never come back to me. I don't doubt that, sir. <laughs> So I put the stretcher back into the ambulance and I, and I take him around the side and we get into the, the back of the ambulance and now that it's better lighting, now I can see a little better and I got him standing up and he's in his late 30s and he's wearing a t-shirt and he's got sort of scruffy brown hair and he looks relatively normal and he's got black jeans on but I can see they're wet and I can see they're kind of glistening and so I say to him, I say, sir, can you just take your pants down? And he says, sure. He's just like it's the normalest thing ever. Sure. Takes his pants down. I say, sir, can you... um..." And I I look at him, and he's got a... He's he's wearing a pair of tidy whiteies, but they're just like... They're just crimson. They're just red. Just the entire things. And I say, sir, can you just take your underwear down? He says, sure. And so he... uh, First, though, he, he pulls back the waistband... And he reaches in and he pulls out a, a balled up sweat sock. And it's just soaked in blood and he drops it on the ground. Psst. And he reaches in and pulls out another. Psst. And then he reaches in and pulls out a third. Psst. And then he pulls his underwear down. And I'm looking at it. And it's just a big mass of of congealed blood and pubic hair and pardon the pun, but I can't make heads or tails of it. (laughs) And I'm kind of looking and I'm like, sir, can you show me where the end of your penis is? And I immediately regret those words. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, the end of your penis. Because it is the end of his penis. And I'm like, oh, sensitivity training much, Morgan? (laughs) But I say it, I'm like, can you show me the end of your penis? And he's like, sure. And so he lifts up a little nub that was before unseen by me. And as he lifts up this little nub, blood shoots out of it sprays across the entire ambulance and hits the back doors. My reaction. Put it back down! Put it back down! Put it back down! Put it back down! I'm reaching off the shelf. I'm grabbing pressure dressings. I'm throwing them at him. Hold that on him! Hold that on him! Hold that on him! I go around to the front to, to to my driver who I notice Brian has never left the driver's seat this entire time. He's just been sitting there the whole time, just rocking in one place. And I just turn to him and I'm like, drive, drive, drive! 
and I'm setting up the stretcher and I'm putting sheets down and I'm putting soaker pads down and I'm getting him to come around and lie down and he seems very kind of surprised by the kerfuffle. He doesn't quite seem to know what all this activity is all about. And I get him lying down and I get him strapped in and wrapped in the sheet and and now that's all kind of settled and I'm like, so, do you have any heart problems? Any breathing problems like asthma? Are you diabetic? <laughs> High blood pressure? Stroke? Seizures? Cancer? I ready my pen with a click. Psychiatric or mental illness? <laughs> and he says, well, I get depressed sometimes. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Do you take any medication for that? And he says, hmm, I used to take Paxil. Have you considered taking it again? So we're going off to the hospital, we're on our way there, we get there, uh, it's been quite uneventful to be honest. We arrive, there's a, there's a male nurse and there's a female nurse and we go in and the female nurse uh, turns to him and says, what did you use to cut it off with? And I'll be honest, that question did occur to me, but I didn't ask it. And the reason I didn't ask it is I kind of answered it myself because I just thought to myself, who cares? It's gone. It's gone. But I make a note to myself that that is an important question. And if I do another call for a man separated from his manhood, that I will endeavor to ask that question. And so she asks, what did you use to cut it off with? And he says a Gillette Mach 3 razor. Which, at the time, I was using a Gillette Mach 3 razor. So I'm familiar with the Gillette Mach 3 razor. And it's one of these things where I didn't ask, but of course, the question went through my mind because I want to question the very definition of the word safety razor. Because I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he modified the blade somehow and then did it with a sideways swishing sort of or the alternative would be that he did it much like a, a vegetable peeler through a carrot and was more like And I don't know, and I probably never will, and the reality is it's probably not that important that I do. Anyway, so he answers a Mach 3 razor, and the male nurse turns to him and says, Mach 3, that's a good razor. And the patient looks back at the male nurse and says, it's a very good razor. <laughs> so many years have gone by now uh, since that call. And I have to say that I'm a much better paramedic now than I was then. Uh, if you ever call 911 and I walk through the doors, don't worry, you'll be fine. But the job does change you, and it doesn't change you in the ways that you probably are thinking. Um, so yes, of course, it does change the fact that I have, uh, I have a very strong ability to ignore other people's pain and suffering. Um, <laughs> or uh, the fact that my colleagues and I can casually talk about rotting bodies while eating breakfast. But one of the things, uh, and this is true, that has changed is uh, since then, I have not shaved with a blade. <laughs> Thank you.
this morning with a bad hangover And my penis was missing again This happens all the time, it's detachable This comes in handy a lot of the time I can leave it home when I think it's going to get me in trouble Or I can rent it out when I don't need it But now and then I go to a party, get drunk And the next morning I can't, for the life of me, remember what I did with it Um, so I'm about to tell you the story that I, I can't believe that I'm going to tell you because it's basically me confessing to breaking the laws of two countries, Canada being one of them. And I feel like as a visitor here, I should be putting my best foot forward. I'm from New York, by the way. Oh, thank you. I love, I love this city, by the way. I love it more and more every time I come here. You have bagels and you have a mountain. It's a fantastic combination. <laughs> So the stuff that went down, I'm about to tell you, it was in the 90s. So I'm hoping that the statute of limitations has expired. Um, stuff that happened to me back then, it's consigned to this amorphous cloud, mainly because I was, oh, well, not kind of. I was a pothead. I was a big, chronic stoner. Um, so there's a lot of bad judgment in this story, too. If there's any law enforcement in the house, think of me as an unreliable narrator. But this is what I remember. So I fell in love with a guy named Machito in uh, a bathroom in a bar in the East Village. I think Kevin was there. <laughs> we cruised each other in the mirror. He was like this Venezuelan guy with a compact body and a really easy smile. My first impression of him was like he was this exotic, like bull stud. And he had an incomprehensible accent. And the first thing he said to me was, I never see a gringo tan bello. And if you need a translation, it roughly means you're really cute. <laughs> I wasn't too concerned about the accent, though, because I really wasn't interested in talking that much. Uh, we just kind of lunged at each other in that bathroom as uh, bar customers came and went. And uh, we walked out of that bathroom, and we were basically like in an instant relationship. He moved in with me like two weeks later. There was a problem, though. The problem was that Machito was about to overstay his tourist visa. I kind of brainstormed this solution where we would leave the country and then re-enter. So I booked this all-inclusive package tour to the Dominican Republic. It was supposed to be like three days of sunbathing and swimming in the Caribbean and eating elaborate meals. <clears throat> so we did that, came back to the U.S. And um, I'm watching as Machito takes the immigration line from my line for U.S. citizens. And this uh, immigration officer is going through his bag. And I think, well, that's normal. But I'm watching from where I stand. And she's a very nice-looking, like a pleasant kind of plump woman with a round face and little waves in her hair. And she looks like a mom. She looks very comforting, maternal, except for the uniform. She pulls this postcard out of his bag. You know, we had been in the DR, and he bought some postcards, but we couldn't find a post office or stamps, so he just didn't mail it. And then she starts reading from the postcard, and it says, Estoy trabajando en un café. Está bien. I'm working in a restaurant. It's not bad. So Machito's basically confessed to breaking his visa. And that nice-looking immigration officer breaks out in this crazy grin and looks at her associate and high-fives him and says, We got one! <laughs> and, uh, whoa. And so I'm looking as Machito is marched off to this interrogation room by the two of them. And he catches my eyes. I can't really move because I'm in front of uh, the counter, and he's like grief-stricken. And he looks so small next to their big bodies, like they could make one coordinated turn and crush him. So it turns out that uh, they're going to send him back to Venezuela the next day on a flight, and his passport's going to be stamped barring re-entry for 10 years. 
My government has taken my love away, and I vow to get him back. I mean, I know we barely knew each other, but that was not the point. <laughs> Whatever journey we were on was not going to end with this mean mom lady in beige. I find out where the immigration detention facility is, where he's being held overnight, and I rush over there. It's this kind of concrete bunker of a building with a big fence in front of it. And there are some people gathered, and they're yelling names of the detained into the walls. And this lady explains it to me. She says, well, if, uh, if the detained are in one of the front cells, they might hear you, and you can have, that's the only way you can communicate with them. So this one guy goes up to the wall, and he yells the person's name, and they answer back. So there's this conversation going on, so we all kind of hang back and let them talk. And then it's my turn to go up to the wall and yell, and I go up to the wall and I yell, Machito! Machito! And it just bounces off the concrete, and there's no answer. So I go back to New York alone. I'm lamenting about my experience with this to my best friend, Josh, who at the time was dating this girl from British Columbia. And I'm telling him this sad story, and he's like, dude, just bring him back through Canada. Like it's the most obvious solution in the world. <laughs> well, it turns out that Josh's girlfriend has these friends who might be able to help us. But first, I have to get Machito into Canada without going through US airspace. So he flies to London, and from London he flies here. So I take the train up from New York, and meet him at the airport. You have to picture this. This is the time before cell phones, so we're just like looking for each other in, in a, in, in on, on a concourse. And it's a really crowded concourse. People are like zipping past from every direction. And I can't find him. And uh, finally, I see him, and we're like just a couple of feet from each other when we see each other. And we realize that we're, you know, in the same place. And we just say, he starts crying, I start crying, we hug, we're having this reunion, and then I start feeling really self-conscious about it because it's so conspicuous that we're going to attract attention. And, but nobody seems to care, thankfully. So from there, uh, we book a flight to Vancouver, where I rent a car, and we drive east. And we meet up with Josh's girlfriend's friends. These three guys, they're like, uh, it turns out they're the grown sons of American men who had dodged the draft during the Vietnam War and Canadian women. They were like sturdy, tall, lean, hippie-ish guys who were basically white Rastafarians. They kept their blonde hair and dreadlocks. Uh, they were stateless in the eyes of the U.S. because of their dads, so they had figured out a way to sneak into the country. They were visiting their relatives, but they were also doing business. They basically grew pot in the woods. So we meet these three guys at this trailhead and go out for vegetarian burritos. And they, one of them explains to Machito how this is going to go down. He says, uh, Machito, you're going to walk this dry riverbed tonight, later. You can't bring a flashlight, though. It's too conspicuous. There's plenty of moonlight. And I look, and it's like a half moon. <laughs> you walk about three miles... And then you're going to get to this, uh, the, the riverbed's going to go under a road. So you go in that drainage ditch. That's where you hide. And then another one turns to me and says, you go through this checkpoint. And about a mile down the road, you're going to see a bend. And then you're going to see a guardrail. And that's where you wait. And Machito's freaking out because he's not really an outdoorsy type. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm freaking out because I have to deal with another U.S. border agent. And then one of them says to Machito, oh, and if you see a bear, just ignore him. <laughs> and with this, Machito starts crying, and he, like, runs to me, and he's, like, sobbing, and he's like, I can no ignore bear. We don't have bear in South America. <laughs> and I'm like, Machito, I coach him. I'm like, Machito, you can do this. Just follow the riverbed. I will be waiting. And then one of the white Rastafarians is like, you guys seem really stressed. Do you want to smoke a joint? And we're like, yes. So we smoke a joint with them. It's great. They're like really cool. It's mellow. And then uh, we start laughing at the whole situation. But then it gets like we turn paranoid. Like we're going to forget all of the instructions and screw this up. 
So the time comes for Machito to start on his walk, and we take him to the trailhead. And I basically have to push him to get him to start. And then I drive over to the checkpoint. And once again, it's a lady border agent. And she seems nice, and she's like asking me those routine questions. And I'm acing it. I'm like, yeah, I got the answer to these questions. I'm yammering whatever answer she wants to hear. And then she notices like two pot seeds in the ashtray of the car. And I blame the, the white Rastafarians. I like, this is, this is what I get for getting involved with stateless drug dealers. They were mine. And uh, when she sees those, she like takes the car apart looking for contraband. <clears throat> so I'm at this checkpoint, she's going through the car. She opens the trunk. The trunk has two very large suitcases. One is Machito's and one is mine. And she's like, why do you have so many clothes? And I kind of pulled a gay card, and I'm like, I never know what to pack. <laughs> and that worked, and she let me through. It was like an hour at the checkpoint, but it, she let me through. So the timing has kind of worked in my favor, I'm thinking, because like by the time I get to the meeting point, Machito hopefully will have gone through, and I don't have to linger there and cause attention. So I pull up to the guardrail when I see it, and I roll down the window, and it's like a very clear night. It's, you know, it's just trees swaying in the breeze. And then I hear a little rustling, and Machito pops his head up from behind the guardrail, just like they planned, just like we all planned. And I see his eyes catch in the headlight, and he runs over to the car. And I'm like, the first thing I say to him is, did you see a bear? And he's like, no, I run all the way. And he's like panting, but we've done it. And we like, say, I say to him, we did it. And we hug, like that kind of awkward car seat hug. <laughs> so now I'm very motivated to get to Seattle because we're pretty conspicuous out in the wilds of Washington State. I'm like a gay guy from New York, and Machito is this brown man with fake ID. <laughs> so I'm tearing through this road, and uh, a police cruiser stops us. It's like, oh, great, now we're both going to jail. But I pull it together and I say, Machito, put this ball cap on, pull it over your face, and pretend you're sleeping. I'll do the talking. So the police officer comes over to my side of the car, and he's like impossibly good looking, like black hair, blue eyes, a big broad chest and a broad smile. He looks like a superhero. <laughs> and he's like, all he seems to be interested in is making small talk. I show him my New York driver's license, and he's like, oh, you're from New York? I've always wanted to go there. Like, yeah, it's great. You should come. Totally hang out. And then he's like, uh, what are you doing around here? And I said, oh, we're on vacation. Goes, oh, yeah? I was like, yeah, we were just doing some hiking, which was not entirely untrue. <laughs> so we make this small talk, and I'm like trying not to fall for his superhero charms, and Machito's like pretending to be asleep, but he's actually like shaking and crying. So I can't believe that Superhero hasn't figured this out. But finally he says, um, well, you're speeding back there, but I didn't have my radar gun on, so you're free to go. But take it easy. Whoa, okay, Superhero, great. So I drive through the night to get to Seattle and I've arranged to stay with my lesbian friend Gwen who had relocated there for a relationship. And uh, we get to her apartment, and she opens the door, and we're like, we have this little reunion. We're like hugging and sobbing, and I'm like, you're our Harriet Tubman. <laughs> so we have this great little three-day visit to Seattle. We're in the Capitol Hill area. We sleep in late. We go to coffee bars, and we smoke a lot of pot with Gwen's girl power click. And eventually, I book a flight back to New York via Houston. I'd like to tell you that, <laughs> that um, things were happily ever after once we got to New York, but things fell apart pretty soon after we got back. It was like, I think we were both too traumatized. We were locked in this, like, dysfunction for a long time, like way longer than it should have gone on. I think we were kind of like, still detained at the 49th parallel of our emotions. Um, we had crossed boundaries of state, but we still couldn't get past our own limitations. So here I am in Montreal in 2016 confessing to this and looking back on this, kind of recovering this data from my cloudy past. 
I guess I'd like to say that, um, you know, we'd all like to think of ourselves that we do anything for love. So I can't say I figured out the love part, but at least I know now that I will go to extraordinary lengths for it. <laughs> Thank you. This is Ezra Furman behind me now, and we just heard from Dale Corvino. Dale has written for The Rumpus, for Salon.com. You can find more of his stuff at dalecorvino.com. And that was at our Montreal show. Now, we really want to come back to Montreal. So, folks in Montreal, pitch us. It doesn't matter what time of year you're pitching us. Just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. And if we see a lot of good stuff coming in, we will make a point of coming back for sure. Before Dale, we heard a little something from classic King Missile. Who could forget detachable penis? Well, now our final story is going to come from our Toronto show again. This is Sarah Long Hendershot. Sarah's first novel, Abacus is in the publishing process, and you can find her band, The Jane Mutiny, on Facebook. Here she is now at the Risk Live Show in Toronto with a story we call When You Wake. It's 1967. I'm wearing my white sleeveless sundress with the beautiful yellow daisies embroidered on the two front pockets, and I'm sitting on my grandmother's lap. She's swinging in a squeaky glider swing in the garden behind 66 Winwood Lane in Tonawanda, New York. She's stroking my hair and she's singing quietly right in my ear so no one else can hear. And the memory is a little bit fuzzy because I can't remember what the song was. And I was staring at the hollyhock blossoms. They were red and pink and yellow, and they looked like the gowns of beautiful women. And I was terrified. I was terrified to even shift my eyes because I was afraid I was going to do something that would make this moment end. The loving attention that I was receiving and the physical touch that I was receiving was astounding to me. And I knew that at the end of that afternoon I would have to go home to a household where I was not a child to be cherished. But in that moment, I felt like I was going to be okay. It's 1980. I've worked very hard on my solo for the County School Music Association competition. It's a very difficult song. It's a level six. That's the highest that they go. My name is called. I walk into a classroom. I see three very serious-looking adult judges behind a table and a beat-up spinet piano 
with my music teacher sitting there, and she smiles at me and nods because she has faith in me. And I start singing, and I forget all the work and the complexity of the song, and I lose myself in the beauty that Mozart had created. And six minutes later, when the song is over, I don't have any memory, no specific memory of the performance that I've just done. And I don't know if I did okay or not. And I go back out to the gym where everybody is waiting, and I wait for the score sheet. And 20 minutes later, my teacher comes running in, waving the sheet in the air, and she hands it to me, and I look down, and it says that I got a perfect 100, which is unheard of. And in the comments section, the judges wrote, you made us cry, and we haven't had a performance like that in years. And when I got home that night and I showed the sheet to my mother, she read it, and she nodded tersely, and she said, just don't forget, this is only a hobby. And when you get out in the real world, somebody that looks like you, nobody will ever pay to see you perform. 1984 to 1994, people fucking paid to watch me perform. I put myself through college for music. I started out singing commercials for radio and TV. I sang on over 300 albums. I was an opening act for a dozen famous performers. I worked in New York, I worked in LA, I worked in London, and I worked in Nashville. In 1995, everything changed. At that point, I was a single mother of a four-year-old child. And I met a man who I thought was very nice. But his kindness very quickly turned into an obsessive idea that my son and I needed to travel with him back to Pakistan to be his second family. And I thought that it would blow over if I just laid low until one night when I got home and I was very tired and I went to get into bed and as I slipped between the sheets, my leg hit up against a package. And that package contained photographs of me and my son that had been taken earlier that day without my knowledge. And it also contained a cassette tape, which I popped into a player, and it was probably 40 minutes of our stalker wailing and shrieking and crying about how we had to go to Pakistan. The judge who issued the restraining order wanted to talk to me after the court proceeding was over, and he motioned me to come up to the bench. And I walked up, and he leaned forward, and I leaned up to talk to him, and I could smell coffee on his breath, and I could see crumbs from his toast stuck in his beard. And I thought to myself, he's not a judge, he's a human being, and he has real concern in his eyes. And he said to me, Miss Long, I'm really very concerned about your safety. This man can't be arrested until he actually commits a crime, but I have no doubt that he's going to do it. And I'm wondering if you have thought of the fact that if he gets your child on a plane to the Middle East, you'll never see him again. And I knew at that moment that he was right and that I was going to have to leave. So in the middle of the night, I left Boston with my son, and we moved to a small town in upstate New York, Ithaca, that I had passed through a decade before, and I remembered being an incredibly beautiful green place, and I thought, I need sanctuary right now. So we moved to Ithaca without knowing a single person. And I stood there looking at the tatters of my life, and I thought, I've lost the one thing. I've lost the one piece of evidence that I had that my mother was wrong about me. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life at that point. 
That's when my brother sent me a clipping from his local newspaper. And the clipping said, Horseshoeing is a dying art, and farriers can get a job anywhere in the world because there's a shortage of farriers. And I thought to myself, I like animals. So, we moved to Michigan. And I enrolled in the Michigan School of Horseshoeing and Equine Dentistry. <laughs> and you know what? It was, it was very hard work. It was a hot summer, and we were moving around these farmyards in our work boots and our leather aprons. We're working on 1,800-pound animals. And I'll tell you, if you don't have horse experience, they are fucking big. <laughs> And the horses at the beginning are real skeptical of new people who don't really know what they're doing. But over the course of several weeks, I started to get more comfortable. I made a good friend there, uh, this guy named Jeff, who was in the same program. One of the goals of the class is to shoe 100 horses before the end of the summer. And Jeff and I had gotten together one time after class, and we were like, you know what we should do? We should make up signs, and we should put them up in the farm stores to look for extra work because we can get closer to our 100 horses and if we have any knowledge gaps, we can help each other out. And the very day after we put up our little sign in the tractor store, we get a call from a woman and she says, listen, this is great. I have a farrier, but he's laid up right now. I have two beautiful, gentle, mature horses. They just need a trim. It will be very easy work for you. And Jeff and I were like, yes, this is perfect, because one big problem that new farriers have is that they get all the horses that the experienced farriers reject. And there are a lot of reasons to reject horses, but the main theme is that they're dangerous. So experienced farriers are like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not touching that horse. And so give it to the new guy. All right, well, anyway, we were very excited to go and do these gentle horses. So the next day, we drive out to her farm in the country. She's got a beautiful yellow farmhouse with meticulously manicured flower beds, the classic big red barn up on a hill with the big double doors open to the pasture. There's a concrete block garage that's painted white. And as we drive into the circular gravel driveway, we can see that she's already got the two horses out. She's got a big dappled gray thoroughbred, and she's got two farmhands there that are handling a brown Arabian. Jeff and I get our stuff out, and we walk over, and the horses are just nibbling at the grass and swatting away flies with their tails. And we start working on these horses. And immediately, I start having problems with this horse. She's yanking her foot away from me. She's kicking at the earth and shifting around. She's snorting. And these are all classic stress behaviors. And I'm thinking, she pulled a fast one on us. These are not gentle horses. And the woman's saying, I don't know what's going on. I've never seen this before. These are the best, gentlest horses. I I don't know what's going on. I look over, Jeff is having the same problem. Well, now this horse is starting to escalate. It's trying to rear up. Its eyes are rolling in terror, and it's snorting. And the woman is now having to use her weight to hold on to the lead, and she's bending her knees and trying to keep it from rearing up. And I'll tell you what, standing a couple feet from a rearing up horse, that's also scary, because you thought they were big before, but when they're up in the air and it's like 12 feet, it's scary. So... The horse now violently jerks its head up, which loosens the woman's grip on the lead, and then now it has some slack, so it rears up into the air. As it comes back down, its right hoof clips this woman in the forehead, and she collapses on the ground unconscious. Now, not only is there an unconscious horsewoman right there, There's a horse dancing around over her body, and no one has control of the lead anymore. 
And I'm thinking, somebody's literally going to die here in a second. One of the farmhands comes running over to try to gain control of the lead, but before he can grab it, the horse lets out this otherworldly shriek, jumps over the pasture fence, and starts hightailing at full speed to the back of the pasture with its eyes rolling and shrieking. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And now I'm leaning over to help this woman up. She's coming to and she's looking over my shoulder and her eyebrows are knitting together. And I turn around and look and I see that the sky has taken on this strange green cast. And there are no sounds. There are no birds. There are no crickets. There are no cicadas like there were when we walked in. And we realize as giant balls of hail start coming down, what's going on. She points to the garage and tells the three men to take the horse and get into the garage, which they do. They run into the garage, they pull the door down. We know there's not enough room for everybody, so the two of us go running for the barn. The rain is coming in like a wall, zigzagging across the farmyard. We run into the barn and we're standing in the run-in. And the run-in of the barn is the great big area inside the big barn doors where the horses can come in and out at will if they want to get out of the sun or whatever. And there's straw on the ground. And in that run-in is a foal. It's a brand new foal. It's not even 24 hours old. And this little little horse, little baby horse, in case you don't know what a foal is, is... (laughs) is um, panicking, really panicking. Like, this isn't supposed to happen in my first day of life. (laughs) And the woman, she runs over and she grabs onto the harness of this foal and she grabs my hand in her other hand and she squeezes it as hard as she can. And she starts praying. And she's like, oh, heavenly father above, We know we're just chaffing the wind in the face of your awesome power, but please, Lord, we beg you to look down on us and protect us from your mighty storm. And I'm looking out of these double barn doors, and I see a black funnel start to come down. And the noise is getting louder and louder, and the walls of the barn are starting to vibrate. And her prayers just get louder and louder, but at the same time her prayers are getting louder, the storm is getting louder. And I don't know if you've ever heard about how loud tornadoes are, but it was like a thousand freight trains over our heads. And it got so loud that she's screaming, Lord Jesus Christ, please save us, please keep us in your hands, keep us safe. And she's screaming louder and louder to the point now that where the storm takes over her voice and her mouth is inches from my ear and I can't hear a word she's saying. And I realize I'm not a believer and her prayer wasn't really doing anything for me, but I'm looking out and I'm thinking, I'm not afraid. I wasn't afraid at all. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. watch it with my eyes open anymore because there was so much debris flying through the air. We were seeing entire trees ripped up with their root balls and just thrown like matchsticks. So I had my eyes mostly shut and I was viewing this through the fringes of my eyelashes. And then all of a sudden it was over. It just stopped. And we walked to the doorway And the birds were singing again, and there was sunshine, and there was a great big ugly zigzagging scar across that farmyard where that tornado had passed. And we see out in the back of the field that dappled gray horse just nibbling at the grass and swatting away flies with its tail. We go out to the garage and we see, we open the door, and the guys didn't know what was going on. There weren't any windows, so they were waiting for the all clear. Jeff is unconscious. He passed out from the fear and the stress of it. And I said, you know what? I don't think there's going to be any horseshoeing today. 
So we packed up our gear and we went home. And when I got home, I found that I had a whole bunch of messages from my mother. And I didn't call her back right away because I didn't want to deal with her. I wanted to process what it was I had been through that day. But later that evening, I did call her. And I started telling her the story. And she was uncharacteristically quiet through the entire thing. And when I finished the story, she said, Sarah, the reason I was trying to reach you is because your grandmother died today, right around the time that tornado went through. And she was a very fierce woman, and I'm wondering if that was her leaving the planet. <laughs> and uh, she went on talking about the particulars of my grandmother's death, but I didn't listen to her anymore. I had a lot of feelings. I felt like, you know what? I'm going to be okay. Even though I was standing in total destruction, I knew I was going to be okay. And I suddenly remembered that first memory that I had of my grandmother and the song. The song came back to me. And it was... hush don't you cry. Go to sleep, little baby. When you wake, you will have all the pretty little horses. Thank you. in a second I found myself in a second hand guitar never thought it would happen but I found myself in a second hand guitar so I've just got to know I truly have to know so you got to let me drunk anymore So I just got to know I truly have to know But you got to let me That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Leanne LaHavis behind me now, and we just heard from Sarah Long Hendershot. Here are the places where Risk is coming next. On August 20th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. We've been doing great shows at the Bootleg. We're going to have Chris Red back for that show. He such a huge hit the last time he did the show. And Andy Dick will be there as well. On August 24th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Victor Vernardo will be returning to the show that night. Julia Rozzi as well. On September 17th, we return to Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt Lake, pitch us your stories. The theme that night is outrageous, and we are still taking pitches at risk-show.com slash submissions. That show is on September 17th. On September 30th, we are in Richmond, Virginia for the first time. The theme is juicy. Folks in Richmond, pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans. New Orleans, pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. The theme that night is Legends. Baltimore, we come to you the next night, November 12th. The theme that night is Wounded. 
Now, it doesn't matter where you are in the world or when we're coming to your town. Everyone pitches your stories at the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's instructions there. There's a video there where I walk you through the steps of how to formulate a great pitch for us. And if you're worried, oh my gosh, how do I tell a story? Then contact me at thestorystudio.org. You can do a one-on-one session with me or do one of our video courses at thestorystudio.org. Everything you need to know about telling a story, we will teach you there. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. to know what you're doing with all that chicken in your pants. I told you to meet me at George's Chicken House.